you see the style that we've been following has been mostly overview style. We try to get an essence, we try to get the essence of, of each chapter and then its context within the, the big picture of Tanya. Sort of like the, the style of the Tanya map, which has chapters broken down into groups of chapters and color-coded. Um, so if you've been, been with us since chapter one, you know, you know the style, how we, how we study Tanya here. And if you notice that before each group of chapters, there's sort of like a, an introduction to that group of chapters. And then you'll notice there's one group of chapters that just has one chapter. You see that red, or maybe it's kind of like dark pink, uh, which I suppose is the color of love. It represents love. I don't know. These pictures, these, these colors were, were chosen by graphic designers, so people ask me if they have Kabbalistic significance. They do not. <laughs> but uh, you see that one chapter that uh, has its own intro, but it's its own category unto itself. In fact, you'll probably even notice that the, I think it's the yellow color that goes from 26 to 31, and then it picks up again. The yellow picks up again on 33 to 34. Yeah. yeah, you ever wondered why that is? It's funny, huh? So we'll talk about that a little bit more when we do 33 and 34. But for now, I'll just tell you that 32 is an interruption. So it actually is smack in the middle of the flow from 26 to 34. And uh, having said that, I, I suppose a little bit of introduction is in order. Let me place this aside here. We'll put it back on our easel where we normally keep it. When the Alter Rebbe wrote Tanya, when he first wrote Tanya, it was written as pamphlets. And the pamphlets were circulated by, uh, by Chassidim. And then later, for various reasons, the Alter Rebbe decided it was time to have an official printed copy. The, 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 the pamphlets were manuscripts. They were handwritten. Uh, the Alta Rebbe decided it was time to have an official version of Tanya, where it was printed, you know, printing press, and, and bound, you know, with the actual, you know, binding, and all the chapters collected together in one place, in one book, and with uh, chapter numbers. So, if you look in the original uh, manuscripts, there are, the, there, are, there are differences, structural differences, some of them are uh, minor, some are more significant. Probably the most significant structural difference that between the, the pamphlet version and the bound book that came out is that the Altarebbe inserted an entire chapter right here at this point, which became chapter 32. So in, in a certain way, chapter 32 is recognizably an interruption. You can tell how the flow sort of takes a break between 31 and 33 and then gets back on track. Um, and yet, we know everything is bashkachopratis, everything is providential. The insertion of chapter 32, or what became chapter 32, which is this treatise on Avas Yisro, has, uh, has to us deeper significance in that 32 is Lamed base, and Lamed base spells lave, heart. And it has been noted through the generations by both the Hasidim as well as the Rebbeim that chapter 32 of Tanya is the heart of Tanya. Pedic Lave, Lamed Base, is the heart of Tanya. Now, it's kind of interesting to think of chapter 32 as the heart of Tanya, because if I were to ask you, maybe let me ask those who have been to most of the classes, if you were to encapsulate for me the gist of this book, what would you say is the gist? Like, what's the, what's the purpose? What, what is a person... Well, I'm giving away half of it by saying what's the purpose and what do you use it for? Because uh, you all know that I emphasize the fact that this is a manual. It's not an encyclopedia of, of mystical thought. It's a, 
manual for practical living that uses mystical thought as its language. But what's a, what's a, what's it a manual for? Hmm? Becoming close to Hashem. Yeah, I agree with that. I would I would agree with that definitely. So it's a little bit interesting that the heart of a book that's about your relationship with God is about interpersonal relationships, our relationship with other people. Right? The essence of a book about how to get close to God is a chapter about how to love other Jews. Sounds a little funny. And yet, as, as we study the chapter, we realize, yes, how, what does it all boil down to? What is our, our quest for godliness? What does it really look like? It is a picture of Avas Yisrael, loving our fellow Jew. Okay, so without further ado, let's, let's talk about what it actually says in the chapter. Um, the first words of chapter 32 make a transition from chapter 31 to 32. Because although 32 is, uh, was sort of smushed in there, but it was smushed in there for a reason. And it wasn't just because the Al-Tarebbe wanted it to be 32, which is Lamed Beis, which is Leif. There, there is a logical reason why 32 belongs there, in that place. <clears throat> First words of chapter 32 are al kiyam hadvarim hanizkarim le'el by fulfilling or implementing the words that were just mentioned, meaning in 31. So if you remember from last week, 31, what was the point of 31? What was 31 telling us? Remember 31 was about the difference between depression and frustration, the healthy frustration, and it was about changing your identity, although as a non-tzaddik, that's the PC term for it, uh, we certainly identify with our animal desires and our egos much more than we identify with that pristine holy soul that is somewhere deep inside of us. Nevertheless, we're, in 31, we were asked, try to identify, at least conceptually, identify with the soul, the godly soul, being your true self, and, and regard your body and its drives and your ego and all of that, what we call animal soul, regard that as secondary. And, and, and remember this, this concept from chapter 31? Identify chiefly as your soul, even though that's not your default consciousness. But at least conceptually, accept the fact that the real you is your soul, and that this second you, this alternate you, the body and its drives and its personality that we call the animal soul, that is, uh, not only is it, is it secondary, but if it's but, but in, a, in a certain way, we regard it as a, as a bother, as a hindrance. The context was that if we're experiencing challenges in our service of Hashem, remember, remember the context from the beginning of 26 was about emotional pitfalls in our service of Hashem. And then from 29, we were dealing with apathy, but we're not feeling what we want to feel. So in 31, he said, <clears throat> sometimes to get yourself to break the apathy, you got to get riled up. You got to feel the frustration. The frustration is okay because you're frustrated with your animal soul. So embrace your godly soul as your true self, and it's okay. Be frustrated with your animal soul. I don't want to repeat at length, because uh, <clears throat> I want to move to chapter 32, there's a lot to be covered there, but I just want to make sure we're on firm footing where we're coming from in 31, <clears throat> is this whole idea of identity. I have to see myself as a, as a soul that happens to have a body 
and, and its drives and, and personality. And uh, I should love myself, my true self, my godly self, and I should be appropriately frustrated with my animal soul. So it's, it's all about that, that identity shift, how I view myself. You know, we're not human beings having a spiritual experience, we're spiritual beings having a human experience, that kind of thing. All right, so chapter 32 begins and says, through the implementation of the words above, meaning in chapter 31, this will enable us to have love for every single Jew. How does that work? Why is chapter 31, which is identity shift, seeing myself as a soul that happens to have a body instead of a body that happens to have a soul, why is that going to lead to Avas Yisrael, which is one of the mitzvahs of the Torah? One of the mitzvahs of the Torah is V'yahtul Yachak Kamehah. So he explains. What is the obstacle to loving other Jews? The obstacle is the illusion that we are separate. The body-centered identity, the body-centered self-concept, leads to a body-centered concept of others, of other Jews. And in that worldview, I see my, my, my body, meaning it's what we call the animal soul, sees others as separate from me, and in fact, as in competition with me. So there's a scarcity of resources. And if there's one last brownie at the Kiddush, and it ends up in your stomach, <clears throat> because you muscled in and you got ahead of me in line, and now you got the last brownie and now you ate it, it's in your stomach, I will tell you, according to the laws of physics, now that brownie is in your stomach, it can no longer be in my stomach. One brownie cannot be in two stomachs at the same time. Or, I come into shul and I find you sitting in my seat. The two of us can't be sitting in one seat at the same time. You took my seat. Or, maybe it's not even, uh, we're not even we're talking about brownies or a place to seat, a place to sit. Maybe it's a little bit more intangible. Maybe it's, you're getting all the attention. You're, you're an attention hog. Why do you have to be the center of attention? Everybody's looking at you. Everyone's liking you. And now there's less attention for me. So when we're separate, we're competing over a limited pool of resources. Now, it is true that body-centered people can have relationships they can even have strong feelings in their relationships. But the only way that happens is if there's some compelling, overriding reason to set aside the threat to self, which is inherent in every relationship, and to pursue a connection with another person and allow them space in your life. That is called, in the language of our sages, specifically in Pirkei Aves, an ava shetlui badavar. Conditional love. A love that is based on a factor. In other words, for body-centered beings, the default is that I'm in competition with everyone else. So you're a threat to my existence. You're cramping my style. But if you offer something to me that I find sufficiently 
compelling, then I can overlook the threat and I can make room for you. I think in uh, philosophy, this is called uh, enlightened self-interest, right? So if I were abjectly selfish, I would never compromise and make room for anybody else. But if I am sufficiently sophisticated in my selfishness, I realize sometimes the greatest selfishness is to make some space for somebody else because it'll work out for me. So really, I don't want to have to let somebody else into my life, somebody else who's going to be able to eat from my refrigerator. You know, I'm going to get up in the morning and somebody finished the milk. You know who those people are, right? <laughs> so it would be much better, I'll have my own apartment and my own fridge and my own milk and my own, I'll live my own life, I'll have my own schedule, I'll make my own appointments and I'll do what I want to do. Okay, and some people do that, but very few people actually live that way. Most people do look for friends, they do look for a marriage, they do let people into their lives. Why do they do it? Well, there's a very simple reason why we do it. Because it presents some advantage. Whether it's a material advantage, you know, maybe it just it's economically it works better. Or uh, maybe it's uh, a social advantage. I'm lonely. I, I could use the company. Or maybe it's uh, a different kind of social advantage. You know, it will be good for my social standing if I'll be seen with you. Or how about, it will be good for me and my public image if I marry you. Very romantic, right? <laughs> Political marriage. Or, uh, you know, you, you uh, befriend somebody because they have... Uh, You have access to resources that you would like to get access to. There's all types of different calculations that the ego makes. And, and by definition, in every single ego-based relationship, meaning if I'm body-centered, there's always some reason why I'm allowing somebody into my life. There's some payoff. Now, the flip side of that same coin is, again, like our sages say in Pirkei Alves, that if a love is dependent upon a factor, it will not last. Because, as we know, all factors are fleeting. Everything of this world is temporal and passing. So eventually, the factor will no longer exist. And then the love, quite automatically, will no longer exist. So if uh, you marry someone for their looks and their looks fade, or for their money and then they lose their fortune, or you're friends with them because you have shared interests, and then you grow up and you decide you don't have those interests anymore, you have different interests, so now you change friends. Any love that's based on a factor is about as stable as that factor, which is, it's not stable at all. In fact, as they just say, inevitably, inevitably, it will come to an end. What is the only way to have permanent love, which is true love, love that is not subject to change, is an ava that is not dependent on a factor. What does it mean, a, a love that's not dependent upon a factor? How do we even grasp that concept in our minds? A love that is not dependent upon a factor. So, and, and, and I'll just tell you, this is what the Altareb is about to say. The Altareb says like this. Body-centered people, by default, are threatened by everyone else. 
They can override that default set setting if there's a compelling factor. But once that factor disappears, then the love automatically disappears. Soul-centered people are capable of achieving unconditional love that never disappears. What's the difference? Body-centered identity emphasizes how we are separate. You and I are not the same, and therefore we're competing. If you ate the last brownie, now I didn't. If you're sitting in my seat, now I can't. If everyone's giving you attention, then I'm not getting that attention anymore. But soul-centered identity emphasizes the fact that we are one. Like one light that is shining into many vessels. This is not the metaphor that the Alta Rebbe uses, but picture yourself standing on a beach at sunset, and the sun is uh, a perfect circle, perfect bright orange circle, and it's shining onto the water. And when you look at the body of water, and you look at the surface, you see dancing pinpoints of light. With each wave, with the crest of each little wave, there's another mirror reflection of light. And if you look out upon the surface of the water, you'll see hundreds and thousands of these dancing little points of light. But if you'll look up into the sky, you'll see it's one orb of the sun that's shining, causing all of these points of light. So when we talk about our soul, we're really talking about one common shared soul, which shines into many bodies. If I'm soul-centered, I, I identify as my Jewish soul, then every Jew, and yes, this is specific to Jews, this is not just about how to respect humanity, that's another uh, concept. Of course, we have to, there's such a concept as kavod abriyos, and giving honor and respecting the dignity of every human being, Jewish or non-Jewish. But right now, we're spe specifically speaking about avas Yisro, that once I embrace my true identity as being my soul, what is my soul? My Jewish soul then I realize <clears throat> that that Jewish soul that is present in me is the same one Jewish soul. There's just one Jewish soul, and it's shining into different bodies. It's the same Jewish soul that's present within you. So now what difference does it make if the brownie ends up in your stomach or my stomach? Is it the life if it comes to... Hmm? I mean, there will be a difference when it comes to being alive or not alive, not the brown one. Only, the difference is only from the body-centered perspective. Only from the animal soul's physical, ego-driven, survival-based impulses. But if you can transcend that, then there is absolutely no difference. But isn't that not denying your nature? It is rising above your nature. That is correct. It's absolutely rising above your nature. Nature means the default. The default is we're body-centered, and we do see others, even our own fellow Jews, as separate from us. Tanya is teaching us to rise above that nature, to see things from a higher perspective. Okay, so, how does this work? Let, 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 let's backtrack here a little bit and, and get some momentum. So, first thing we said is that we're coming into chapter 32 with an identity shift. We've done that for ourselves. We've already started to view ourselves differently. I'm primarily a soul and I happen to have a body. And its needs and its drives. Once I do that, I can see you as a soul. 
I have to see myself that way before I see you that way. Right? What will it help if I'm still body-centered and I start seeing you as a soul? It'll probably even make it worse because if I'm body-centered and I see you, see you as a soul, trust me, body-centered me isn't impressed with your soul. It's probably annoyed. <laughs> Doesn't like souls. The first thing i got to do is the internal shift. Change my own, my concept of myself. Okay, so I'm primarily a soul. Now I see you as a soul. That's the next step. Okay, first I see myself as a soul. Now I see you as a soul. Next step is, now I come to the conclusion that you and I are the same. It's really one soul. Yes, our bodies are separate. Those are the laws of physics. The brownie can be in one stomach or another. One person can sit in the chair, not two. That's all true. But that's just body stuff. Those laws of, you know, one thing can't be in two places, and two things can't be in one place, that's all the physical world. That, that pertains to my body. But the real me, my soul, which is the real you, your soul, we are one, and when you eat a brownie, thank you very much for what you've done for the team. The Jews just got a brownie. What do I care if you picked it up or I picked it up? That's called, that is also synonymous with a love that is not dependent upon a factor. Because another way of saying a love that's not dependent upon a factor means I love you because of who I am. Not I love you because who you are. I love you because who I am. That's essential love. Essential means, you know, the essence of something means it's not a feature or a, or a function of that thing. It means it is inseparable from whatever that thing is. The essence is uh, inseparable. So as sure as I exist, synonymous with my very existence is this love. How do we relate to that? That's what I, that's what I was trying to say before. You know, how, how do we wrap hands around this concept? So, what I can tell you is this. The best example that I can give you, the most relatable example that I have found, and maybe someone will find another, but this seems to help to convey the idea, is the way we feel about our children. You know, Nachas might not be PC to say it, but Nachas does fluctuate. Some children give us more Nachas than others, and even one child can give us more Nachas on one day than, an, than, a, than on another day. Whether we like our children is dependent on factors. Whether we get along with them, whether we're compatible with them, personality-wise. Let's be honest. Whether we like them, that is subject to fluctuation. But the fact that we love them, that doesn't fluctuate. And the reason is, our liking them depends on who they are. Our loving them depends on who we are. Because you didn't get to love your child based on finding out anything about them. You loved your child from the moment that you laid eyes on them. Because you love your child because your child is you. Your, your child is an extension of you. So just as you love yourself, you love your child. Liking them is a whole different story. You like them based on, you know, as they grow up and they get a personality. And let's be honest, not, you know, we're not supposed to say it, but you may like them more or less. But the love... 
you can't love them more, you can't love them less. You love them wholly and completely, eternally, unchangingly, from the moment that you lay eyes on them. Why? Because your child is you. Think about it this way. <coughs> Give you a scenario. You're out at a dinner. And it's one of these things where you have to pay, you know, $100 a plate. And uh, they serve a nice dinner, you know, three courses, appetizers and soup and a main course. And then after they finish serving the, uh, the dinner, there's dessert. Chocolate parfait. And they bring out the chocolate parfait. And uh, you're patient, because you're an adult, obviously. So, uh, you know, it doesn't bother you that everyone else is being served. You have, for some reason, you haven't been served. <clears throat> oh, that's interesting. Okay. Oh, it looks like the waiter's moving to the next table already. I'm looking around. He didn't serve me. Maybe he's coming back. <laughs> And you're looking around, oh no, you know, maybe, uh, maybe you didn't see me, I don't know, waiter, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you get his attention, you say, excuse me, uh, is there another parfait? I didn't get my parfait. And he says, oh, all the desserts have been served. And you say, well, really? But... We're short, one parfait. And it happens to be mine, but where's, where's my parfait? He says, well, there was, there was an exact count. We, we had enough for everybody. Really, had enough for everybody. And he's scanning around, all of a sudden you see, across the room. There's a guy. He's got one empty chocolate parfait in front of him. And he's working on the next one. And he's got the chocolate on his face and he's smiling. And you look at him and you think, what kind of terrible monster? Who raised you? This this is how you treat your fellow human beings. No, 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 I'm not upset that you took my parfait. It's the principle of the matter. You pay $100 a plate. What do you think? That you just, you just take, uh, you take seconds before everyone's been served? Disgusting. I'm outraged. And for years, whenever you'll see this guy, you'll think to yourself, selfish. Don't mention a word, but yeah, that's it. What a selfish person, taking a second parfait. No, no, I, I'm not going to mention anything. I'm bigger than that, but I won't forget. Okay, now imagine you're at a, at a wedding. It's the same type of setup, same fancy meal, appetizers and soup and main course and everything. Okay, so you've eaten well. You've eaten well. And at the end of eating very well, they come out with dessert, chocolate parfait. <laughs> Except in this scenario, it's not a fancy dinner, it's a wedding, so you have your family with you. And uh, the waiter serves the parfaits, and then he sort of moves on from your table, and he's serving the next table, and you haven't been served. And you're looking around, and you're being patient, and you're waiting, you're wondering why you're not being served the chocolate parfait. And then you say, waiter, uh, I think our table is short one parfait. Uh, no, I served all, no, it was exactly the, the amount, uh, we don't have any more. And you look, and you're adorable five-year-old son is eating his second parfait. Now you tell me, at that moment, how you feel. 
You feel happy. Your little boy chick is enjoying himself. He got the parfait. In fact, you might not even articulate it with these words, but emotionally, you are content now because you got the parfait. You didn't eat it. Your son ate it. But that's the same thing. You got it. You got it through him getting it. Because he's an extension of you. So when your child is eating the parfait, that's just as good. In fact, maybe even better. You don't even have to get the extra calories. It's maybe sweeter to see that your child got a second parfait than it is to, to eat a second parfait or to eat a first parfait yourself. Why is that? Because any normal person, I stress normal because people <coughs> always like to, it's a, <coughs> people always like to bring up dysfunctional examples to disprove this. Um, but any normal person has that deep feeling of identification with their own child to the extent that your child's success is your success. Your child's pain is your pain. And in fact, in some ways, your child's success gives you more nachas and satisfaction than your own success. And your child's pain, God forbid, gives you greater grief than, than, than your own pain. And that is what it means, a love that is not conditional upon a factor. That's what it looks like when you love somebody, not because of who they are, but because of who you are. As sure as I exist, I have this love within me. The love for my own child. It's not because of what they've done. They didn't earn this love. In fact, they couldn't even do anything to make me not feel this love. This is essential to me. As sure as I exist, I feel this love. I cannot not feel it. And yet, this guy who's sitting across the hall, and he took your parfait, you look at him, and you have no nachas whatsoever from the fact that he's getting seconds on dessert. To the contrary, you feel threatened. You feel affronted. Why is that? There's only one reason. He's not you. You feel separate from him. He's not you. Avos Yisrael means that by all rights, we should feel the same way that we feel about our own children. We should feel about every single Jew. So any success that a Jew, any Jew has in their life should give us as much joy as if it were our success. Any challenge or discomfort that they go through should pain us as much as our own challenges. And in fact, even more. Even more. Why? Because if I'm going through my personal hell, at least I can go back to chapter 26... And remember that this is hidden good and somehow it's lifting me up. And it's really a higher experience. So I can gain from my own trials and tribulations. But when I see another Jew who's going through difficulty, there's nothing that their difficulty can benefit me. It doesn't lift me up spiritually to watch them suffer. So, with my own problems, at least I can rationalize there's some underlying uh, benefit for me. But to see a fellow Jew suffer, there's no good that can come from it for me. So, it's only pain. So, it bothers me even more to watch another Jew suffer. So, this explains 
Now, not only why the identity shift can help us to fulfill the mitzvah of Avos Yisrael as one of the 613 commandments, but now we can also understand why Avos Yisrael is not just one of the 613 commandments, it is a singular commandment. It is different than all other commandments. In the words of Hillel, when the prospective convert said, sum up Judaism for me while I stand on one foot, and he said, what's hateful to you, do not do to your fellow, that is the entire Torah, the rest is commentary, go forth and learn. Until now, in chapter 32, we're explaining how to fulfill the mitzvah of Yisrael as one commandment out of 613 commandments. But now we'll, we'll understand it also as a commandment that is the foundation for all other commandments. It's very simple. The question is like this. How could Hillel say the basis of the entire Torah is interpersonal relationships? Right? That's the question. Because seemingly, within Torah, you have two major categories of obligations. Ben Adam l'chaveroi, interpersonal relationships and obligations. Ben Adam l'mokein, obligations to God. So, if Hillel were to say that the basis of all mitzvahs being Adam l'chaveroi, all mitzvahs between one Jew and another, is what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. That is readily understandable. But how are we to understand that keeping Shabbos, that putting on tefillin, the keeping kosher, that obligations that are purely between us and God, that the basis of those obligations is our ability to love a fellow Jew. And it's very simple. What is the key to loving a fellow Jew? How do we love the fellow Jew? What do we have to do? Identify. As my soul. Rise above my nature. Rise above my animalistic self. Transcend the hardwired survival impulses that tell me that I'm in competition with everyone who's not me. Well, that's the entire Torah. The entire Torah, all 613 commandments. Obligations between one, of, one, one Jew and another and obligations between one Jew and God have one common denominator. They all require that we rise above our animalistic sense of self. And the surest way to do that is by overcoming that most primal threat that is presented by the other. So, to put it this way, if you can get yourself to identify with every other Jew and to no longer feel any threat, to the contrary, to have nachas, to derive great pleasure and fulfillment from everything good that happens to any other Jew. That level of self-transcendence is the key to every mitzvah. Tefillin, and Shabbos, and Kashrus. We've got a couple minutes left here, and uh, there's still uh, another part of the chapter left. And I'm wondering if, we, if we'll be able to cover it. I'm gonna, I think I'm going to try to do it quickly. Rather than push it off to next week, I think I'm going to try to do it quickly. Does that sound good? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so the that's true. Okay, fine. So let's do let's do in two minutes. Let's uh, let's summarize the second half of the chapter. The second half of the half of the chapter is basically 
the answer to yeah, but. The concept of Avas Yisrael is just like we have, we have explained. It's transcending your default body-centered identity and embracing your soul-centered identity, then bringing that identity to the way you view every other Jew, then identifying with every other Jew, and then having that essential, non-changing love for every other Jew. That was basically everything we said for the past hour, but in 15 seconds, so. Okay. And now, here's everything that I could spend another hour saying, but I'll try to do it in, also in, uh, in an abridged format. The rest of the chapter is basically, yeah, but. Somebody comes and says, yeah, but. What about when it says in the Gemara that if you see somebody sinning, you should hate him and you should tell your teacher to hate him? Basically, the rest of the chapter is for the guy who really still likes hating other Jews. And he has sources. He's got... He's got footnotes to back up why, even after he heard this beautiful explanation of Avos Yisrael, he's still, he's still sure that there's got to be at least a few Jews left that he can hate. And, and oh, it's not because they ate the last parfait. It's nothing personal. It's totally on religious grounds. I hate them for sinning. So the Altarebbe says, fine, no problem, let's talk about that. Um, the parameters of that uh, scenario, A, are talking about somebody who is on your level of observance. It says, Rebuking you shall rebuke your, your fellow. And the uh, Gemara says, Misha mitcha, he who is with you, in Torah and mitzvahs, meaning somebody who is your peer. So uh, you can't hate somebody who is on a lower level of observance. By definition, um, that sort of exempts them from, uh, from, from you having any righteous indignation toward them. It's only talking about someone who is on your level, who knows better. That's A. B, you've already rebuked them. The scenario in the Gemara is only talking about if you've already rebuked them and rebuked them sufficiently. And rebuking sufficiently doesn't mean to rebuke them harder. <laughs> you know, maybe I'll say it louder and they'll hear it this time. It means that you have approached them in a compelling way. Devotim hayetzim in alev, words that exit the heart, which will then enter the heart. And uh, the person has heard everything, and they still don't want to change their ways. Mm -hmm. So, first of all, let, let's just go through it. The author says, first of all, okay, you're not allowed to hate people on personal grounds. You know that, just because they annoy you. <laughs> Second of all, even if it's a religious reason, it has to be someone who's on your level, someone who ought to know better. Third of all, even if they ought to know better, you have to have approached them already and approach them sufficiently. And then what are we up to, fifth of all? Fifth of all, even if it ends up that all of these conditions are met, you still have a mitzvah of Avas Yisrael toward them. Well, how, how can I hate them and love them at the same time? Trust me, it can be done. He says they're both true. You hate them and you love them at the same time. You love their true self, their soul, and you hate what they're allowing their ego to do to their soul. And in fact, if you look at it that way, not only are there two emotions in play, there's a third emotion in play. It's called rachmonis. It's called pity or mercy, compassion. Because if you love their true soul and you hate what their ego is doing to their soul, schlepping it along into all types of unsavory things, then you're going to feel compassion toward 
the plight of their soul that's being dragged along through all of this. And this is the meaning of what it, what it says, Jacob redeemed Abraham. It's not talking about something that happened. There's no historical uh, episode where Jacob redeemed Abraham. What it means is that which Jacob represents, the three patriarchs represent the three main emotional spheroids, chesed, vura, and tiferes. So Avram is chesed, and Yankiv is rachamim. Abraham is kindness and love, and Jacob is compassion. So compassion redeemed love. That when the love is locked away, you can't access it because of the unfortunate situation where the person is, they do know better, and you have rebuked them, and they're persisting in their, in their, in their behavior, so then you have compassion on the plight of their soul. And the compassion will then redeem the love, will bring the love out, and will overshadow the hatred. And you won't even have the hatred left anymore either at the end. And if you can do all of this, you can be close to Hashem. And if you want to be close to Hashem, you have to do all of this. There's no such thing as compartmentalizing now and saying that I want to be really spiritual, but that has nothing to do with other people. No, to the contrary. The whole basis of being spiritual and being God-conscious and being growing closer to Hashem, it, it all comes down to our ability to love every other Jew. To love our souls, to love your own soul no matter whose body it's in. To love your own soul no matter whose body it is in. That makes sense? Doesn't just sound like a spiritual concept? You could relate to it? You could do it? You could